Good morning, Deer Creek. Great to be with you all, singing God's praise with you this morning. If you uh, have your Bible, open up to Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 26 this morning. We're going to pray and then dive right into our teaching. Let's pray together. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Let me, let me delight in your commandments. Lead me in the path of them, for I delight in them fully. God, that is our heart. That's our desire this morning, that you would teach us, that you would help us to know it, that you would help us to understand it. And God, that you would help us observe it with our whole heart. We want to be people who know your word, rejoice in it, share it, believe it, and trust in it. God, that is our hope this morning. So would you lead us as we teach and uh, as we listen now to this good news through your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to start in an unusual place. So I just told you we're looking at Mark chapter 4. But I want to start in an unusual place because we've been looking through the Gospel of Mark now for about two months. And last week, Jesus, for the first time, started teaching. We saw explicitly this teaching in parables. And this morning, Jesus is going to give us two more parables. But I don't want to start there. I want to start by rewinding. I want to rewind 600 years from when Jesus is giving this parable that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus is teaching around the year 30 A.D., but I want to rewind 600 years to the year 586 B.C., 586 B.C., when God's people were taken into captivity in Babylon. At this point in 586 B.C., you have to understand, God's people had witnessed this steady decline in power. You remember, if you read the Old Testament, around the year 1000, King David was at the pinnacle of his power. And Around the year 930 BC, that kingdom split into two kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and then the kingdom of Judah in the south. And once these two kingdoms divided, they both started to decline and deteriorate from the inside out. It started with the northern kingdom of Israel. They were supposed to worship God as their only God, but they started erecting false altars. They started worshiping false gods. And then as they began to deteriorate in the year 722 BC. The Assyrian Empire started to grow in the north and eventually they slowly made their way south until they conquered all the nations north of Israel. And then they invaded Israel's capital of Samaria, destroyed their city and took them into exile into the Assyrian Empire. In fact, in order to take them into the exile, they put fish hooks into their mouth and drug people in a line all the way to the north from their native land. Anybody want to go that way? No, I don't think so. It started with the northern kingdom in Israel, but then slowly after that, the southern kingdom experienced a similar fate. It's the year 586 BC, the Babylonian Empire this time started making their way south. And Led by King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire put a siege wall around Jerusalem. They starved them out for nearly two years. And eventually, the city was sieged. They demolished the city walls. They destroyed the temple of the living God. They burned the city to the ground. And all survivors were either executed, exiled into Babylon, or left to live in the rubble. 
All it took was two years of a siege work around Jerusalem for the visible manifestation of the kingdom of God on earth to be destroyed by one empire. It was a turning point in the people of God. You remember Hurricane Katrina? Remember in the year, I think it was 2004. Somebody can correct me afterward. But Hurricane Katrina came blasting through the Gulf of Mexico, destroying New Orleans and destroying Louisiana. And I remember one picture from Hurricane Katrina of this couple. They returned after they had, they had uh, left for the hurricane. They came back to their house. And as they walked into their house for the first time, they saw that their floor was completely washed away. There was no carpet. There was no hardwood. There was no tile. Their walls were destroyed by the flood that had come three feet into their house. Their windows were broken out. Their possessions were ruined. And they have just tears in their eyes as they saw everything that they knew and held dear completely washed away in an instant. That's the same scene that the people of Judah would have experienced when they just saw all of their life, the kingdom of God on earth washed away, completely destroyed and burned to the ground by the Babylonian empire. Now I mention that because it's during the time that God's people were in exile in Babylon that God sent one of the most influential prophets in all of the Old Testament. His name was Daniel. And Daniel comes to the people of God while they're in captivity. And God gives Daniel these, these major visions about what the future is going to look like. And it's a vision. One of these is a vision of four beasts. One of the beasts that Daniel has this vision of is a lion with eagle's wings. Another one is with a bear raised up on one side. The other is a leopard with four wings and four heads. And then this terrifying beast with iron teeth is envisioned by Daniel. And Daniel's scratching his head. He's wondering, why is God giving me these visions? What, what does this all mean? And an angel comes and tells Daniel, these four great beasts are the four kings who shall arise out of the earth. These four great kings and their kingdoms would come out of the earth. But then this angel says they will eventually fall. And then in verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. David or Daniel sees these visions of these four great kingdoms falling, but then the kingdom of God coming. God gives him a special vision after that. He sees what this coming king will look like. This is Daniel chapter 7 again. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So I'm going to pause there really quickly. Pinnacle under David. Decline until this Babylonian empire comes and destroys the kingdom of God on earth. And then Daniel, while in exile, has this vision of a coming eternal kingdom and messianic king that will reign forever and ever. Why do I mention all that? Because that vision that Daniel had has everything to do with Jesus. Jesus, between the time of Daniel and Jesus... 
everything that Daniel envisioned came to pass. Jesus is the king of Daniel's vision. He is the one given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Jesus is the one that all peoples, nations, and languages will serve. He has an everlasting dominion and his kingdom will last forever. That's why the very first words of Jesus' ministry come from Mark chapter 4 or Mark chapter 1. Jesus says, Behold, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The four kingdoms have, had come. The Babylonian Empire came and went. The Medo-Persian Empire had came and went. The Greek Empire had come and gone. And then the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom, had come and then Jesus arrives on the scene. So you understand what people are thinking when Jesus comes and says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Finally, God is going to bring his kingdom and establish it on earth as it is in heaven. If you read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or if you've ever seen the movies, you remember that scene. It's the turning point in the entire movie where Susie and, uh, or sorry, Susan and all the kids, they've entered the wardrobe and they've heard that Aslan has arrived and they meet their tour guide throughout Narnia. It's Mr. Beaver. And Mr. Beaver is talking about Aslan, how there's news of Aslan's coming. And the kids scratch their head and say, well, who is this Aslan? Mr. Beaver says, why, you don't know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. He's not often here, you understand. Never in my time or in my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this very moment and he will overthrow the white witch. That's the anticipation that people hear when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. And Jesus this morning, back to 30 AD, Jesus gives us two parables this morning about his kingdom, about the kingdom of God. And he wants to tell us something very specific about his kingdom that would have come as an utter surprise and an utter shock to everybody who was listening. So Jesus begins with this parable in verse 26 of chapter 4. The parables of the kingdom, Jesus gives two parables. Parable number one. And Jesus said to those who were gathered around him, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That's parable one. Jesus continues, parable number two. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out its large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. With many such parables, Jesus spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples. He explained everything. So parable number one, parable number one about the kingdom. Jesus in this first parable teaches us the surprising way the kingdom grows. Remember, 
With all the anticipation of the kingdom of God, many expectations had started to form around how God's kingdom would come. In fact, there were writings around the time of Jesus. One of them was known as the Apocalypse of Baruch. In the Apocalypse of Baruch, the writer envisions what's going to happen when God's king comes to earth. And he writes this, It shall come to pass when the Messiah has brought low everything that is in the world, and has sat down in peace for the age on his throne of his kingdom, that joy shall then be revealed and rest shall finally appear. That is how God's kingdom is going to come. People thought the king, the Messiah, will bring low every power and kingdom and he's going to establish his throne in their place and he will reign like King David at his pinnacle. The Messiah will overthrow the Roman Empire and bring his kingdom in power in political and military might. And even Jesus' disciples, they had an understanding that this is how God's kingdom was going to come. In fact, after Jesus had been crucified and then resurrected, they thought, oh, surely this isn't how it's supposed to end. Jesus isn't just supposed to die. Now he's going to bring God's kingdom and overthrow Rome. So, As Jesus gathers his disciples around, they ask him a question. They say to Jesus, is now the time that you are going to restore the kingdom of Israel? In other words, they're asking, Jesus, now you're going to come, right? Now you're going to bring your kingdom in full. You're going to come in on a white horse and you're going to establish your kingdom over Rome. That's how this script is supposed to go, right? But Jesus says, notice, in this parable, he doesn't say the kingdom of God is like a man on a white war horse with a sword strapped to his hip with a massive army that will invade a unsuspecting nation. That's not what Jesus says, does he? Notice again in verse 26, how does Jesus describe his kingdom? He said, his kingdom is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. Last week, remember, Jesus likened seed to the gospel message, the word of God. He said that when the gospel message hits particular soils, then how people respond will determine whether they are in the kingdom or outside of the kingdom. So what Jesus is saying is his message, his gospel is how the kingdom will grow. The good news about who he is and what he's done will be the way that he grows his kingdom. It does not come by political influence or cultural transformation or through military power. No, it comes when his message is given, heard, and believed. Anybody uh, remember this name, Charles Colson or Chuck Colson? Chuck Colson was part of the Nixon administration, and he was implicated in the Watergate scandal. And while in prison, he became an evangelical Christian. And after his transformation and his uh, conversion to Christianity, he became a prolific author. And here's one of my favorite quotes from Charles Colson. He wrote, quote, It is of paramount importance that all evangelical Christians realize that the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. Amen. See, it's what Colson realized is what Jesus realized about the people who he was ministering to and talking with. 
he realized that the expectations of some of the followers of Jesus would think that the kingdom of God will come through political influence or military power or cultural renewal. They thought, of course, if God is going to bring his kingdom, it's going to be through a white horse with a a sword strapped on and military power. And people had to hear during the time of Jesus exactly what we need to hear today, that that's not how his kingdom comes on earth. It's remarkable. If you read through the book of Acts, the book of Acts is kind of the narration of the people of God after Jesus leaves earth. It's remarkable what their focus is on as followers of Jesus. Even though there is rampant injustice throughout the Roman Empire, even though there is political and religious persecution against Christians, even though there's widespread immorality and crime, even though Christians are mistreated, and even though the Roman Empire is filled with social and political corruption, it's remarkable that the apostles say next to nothing about any of that. Next to nothing about the social and political culture that they found themselves a part of. And it's even as they are opposed and maligned and imprisoned and martyred, their focus never deviates. Their focus is not how they can usher the kingdom of God on earth through their social change. They never focus on how they can erect the Ten Commandments in the public square so that people will have a better moral compass. They never do it. They never deviate their focus, and their focus is not how can they bring prayer to public schools or how they can dictate some sort of economic equality or how they can, you know, imbibe creation care or environmental justice. Their focus is not on how they can transform Rome more in the likeness of God's kingdom. Why? Because that's not their focus. Their focus, even though those are good things and they are good things, their focus is not on them because that's not the way Jesus said his kingdom grows. Jesus said God's kingdom grows when the gospel is taught, heard, and believed. That's how people are transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed. The word of God going forth in the gospel message is how God's kingdom expands. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor uh, during the 20th century, early 20th century, and he did this thought experiment one time. I've shared this before, but he did this thought experiment. He said, what would it look like if the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, overtook a city? He said, it would look like this. All the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy and polite pedestrians who always smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. All the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. That would be nice, by the way. (laughs) Injustice would be abolished, and the gospel would never be taught. Friends, we need to realize this. We can elect all the right candidates. We can get numbers advantage on the Supreme Court. We can iron out every systemic inequity, clean up crime and poverty. We can make America a bastion of morality and social justice. We can do all those things and people can still be trapped and ensnared by the kingdom of darkness. Because the gospel advances when people 
are taught, heard, and believe by faith, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. That's how people enter the kingdom of God and it grows. That's what makes God's kingdom so different from the kingdoms of this world, by the way. The success of worldly kingdoms, what do they hinge on? Good leadership, good policy, good politics, good platforms, and the contribution of its people, but not the kingdom of God. No, the kingdom of God, in fact, Jesus says this in verse 27. Take a look at it again. Jesus says, do you want to know what your contribution to my kingdom is? Verse 27, the person who scatters seeds, he sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. That's our contribution to the kingdom of God. So sleep. Sleep. Emphasis on sleep. Rise again, sleep, sleep again. Teenagers can get on board with this, right? <laughs> Jesus is clear. The growth is completely the work of God. Verse 28. That word that it produces by itself is one word in the Greek. It's automate, where we get the word automatic. The, the emphasis on this parable is that the growth is completely the work of God and his gospel message. All we have to do is be faithful in sowing it and sleeping. You know what sleep is? Sleep is the reminder that we are not needed by God. That his kingdom does not hinge on our efforts, our platforms, our policies, or our contribution. God is not waiting by our alarm clock every morning at 6, 10 a.m. And right as it goes off, he says, finally, you're awake. I couldn't do anything while you were asleep. <laughs> we're so quick to forget this, though, aren't we? So quick to forget this. We think that it's our job to build God's kingdom by our political and cultural influence. One prominent evangelical author recently was being interviewed on a podcast, and this interviewer asked him the question, you know, what's your greatest concern moving into the 21st century and beyond? And he said, my greatest concern is that I see the deterioration of the United States of America, and I'm convinced that the kingdom of God hinges on the prosperity of America. And the interviewer said, Do you mean the other way around, right? And he said, no, I don't. I don't mean that. I meant what I said. The kingdom of God hinges on the prosperity of America. Friends, I don't think I have to say this to you, but that is completely upside down. It's completely upside down. The growth of Christianity and the advance of God's kingdom does not depend on our contribution, our cultural engagement, our nation, our efforts, or our work. It grows automate. We are called to simply be faithful with the message of the gospel and see God's kingdom grow. And if our idea of the kingdom of God, if our idea of the kingdom of God depends on the United States, then friends, our idea of the United States is far too high and our view of the kingdom of God is far too low. If you scan kingdom of God in the New Testament, by the way, this is instructive. We are never called, never called to build God's kingdom, advance God's kingdom, usher in God's kingdom, transform our culture more into the likeness of God's kingdom, co-labor with God to bring his kingdom. Instead, when we are mentioned in relation to the kingdom of God, the verbs are always passive. The verbs are always inherit, receive, believe in, enter in. We are called to receive God's kingdom 
repent and believe in the king himself to enter God's kingdom. We're never called to build it. It's almost as if God is far more concerned with giving us gracious gifts than he is with us contributing to the work that he's doing. The success of the kingdom of God is so different from the kingdoms of the world. The success of worldly kingdoms is all on the contribution of the people who make it up. But God's kingdom grows when people believe, are taught, and hearts are changed by the gospel message. And if anyone says that they can advance the purposes of God, the mission of God, or the kingdom of God by any other means than the word of God in the gospel, then they are just completely forgetting what Jesus said in John chapter 18. John recounts when Jesus was before Pilate, and Jesus made it crystal clear to the governor of Judea himself. He said, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And yes, it's true. It's not like we do nothing, right? Jesus says it's as if seed is scattered on the ground. We are called to sow the gospel message. That is the sense in which we contribute. Yet even there, the growth belongs to God, automate. It's kind of like, now, don't call child services on me. I sometimes let my kids drive on my lap when we're driving around our neighborhood. And it's funny, right? It's nice and cute to watch a three-year-old behind the wheel. And are they driving? Sure. But where are my hands? They're not back here, I'll tell you that. (laughs) They're on my kids' hands, right? And I'm whispering in their ear, ooh, turn right, turn left. Watch out for that Toyota Camry, right? (laughs) My feet are on the gas. My feet are on the brake. Are they in control? Do they have some contribution? Sure. Sure. But I'm the one driving. We sow. We share the message. But God brings the growth automate. And now Jesus is pretty clear. Look at verse 29. Jesus says here, but when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. That is a reference to Joel chapter 3, verse 13. When Joel the prophet, again in exile or post-exile, he envisioned the day when God would come again and God would come again in glory. He would come again and he would transform the world as far as the east is from the west and God would reign over the cosmos as the great judge and his harvest sickle would reap the nations and those who were part of his kingdom who he would bring into eternal light and those who were not a part of his kingdom, he would burn in utter destruction. So God And Jesus are saying here, yes, that day is coming when God will come in glory. But until that day comes, our job is just to sow. Not bring the kingdom, but announce the king of the kingdom. That's our role. So that's parable number one. Jesus teaches this surprising way that the kingdom grows. It grows when the gospel is taught, heard, and believed by faith. Not through political and cultural influence or power. Now, parable number two. Jesus illustrates here the surprising growth of the kingdom. In parable number one, it was the surprising way the gospel rooted in people's lives and grew, but now it's just the surprising growth of the kingdom. Verse 30, Jesus said to them, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable should we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. 
Remember that vision of Daniel, the four beasts? Remember that? The vision of these four beasts that were these intimidating kingdoms. There was the lion with eagle's wings. There was the bear raised up on one side. The leopard with four wings and four heads. Terrifying beast with iron teeth. These are intimidating, beastly creatures, all of them ravenous with great power. Even today, right, when nations want to symbolize how great their power is, what do they do? They make their symbol, like Russia, the bear, or England, the lion, or France, the tiger. The United States is the spread eagle, all of them ravenous, all of them intimidating. My kids' baseball team, they even understand that you want your team, your side, to look intimidating and overbearing. So we were black this fall. That was our team color. So when I asked the kids, what do you want your team name to be? They went through things like, we want to be the Panthers or the Timberwolves or the Black Widows or the Ravens. We ended up being the Knights, which is pretty intimidating too. But Jesus says, hey, when you think of my kingdom, when you think of my kingdom, when it comes, it's, it's not going to be like bears or lions or panthers or ravens. No, my kingdom's like a mustard seed. Pretty intimidating, right? <laughs> I'm going to name my team the mustard seeds next fall. I think, I think that's a good one. We're going to have yellow pants, yellow socks, yellow hat, yellow jersey. Jesus says his kingdom is so surprising because it begins as something so insignificant. Nobody looks at a mustard seed and thinks anything of it. Remember, Jesus is speaking during the time of the Roman Empire. You know what the two symbols of the Roman Empire were? It was a she-wolf, a she-wolf that was ravenous, that is always intent on protecting its young. And then it was the spread eagle to show the expansiveness of the Roman Empire. But here's Jesus symbolizing his kingdom and his kingship as something completely insignificant, nothing more than a mustard seed, the smallest seed imaginable. Nobody would have looked at Jesus and his kingdom and said, that's the king of the universe. Oh yeah. Emperor Tiberius, sure, absolutely. If, if God became king on earth, it would look like Emperor Tiberius. At least that's what people thought. Jesus of Nazareth, not a chance, <laughs> not a chance. Realize that's how the world has always and will always see the kingdom of God and how it will see King Jesus. If the world recognizes Jesus as king in any way, they see him as a king who is obscure and unremarkable, undesirable, unsophisticated and unimpressive, no more important and significant than a mustard seed. After all, consider the type of people that Jesus attracts. Just consider the type of people Jesus attracts. People noticed this early on. There was a philosopher by the name of Celsus Celsus in the year 177 AD wrote, the Christian movement is a movement of ignorant, unintelligent, uninstructed, and foolish persons. They think that it is people like this that are worthy of their God. Their whole focus is to gain over only the silly, the mean, the stupid, the women, and the children. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, definitely not pulling any punches there, Celsus. In other words, Celsus is saying, Look at the people Jesus attracts. They are, you know, poor, mournful, meek, persecuted, gullible, powerless, altogether unimportant and insignificant people. Or consider Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching sounds so silly, so ridiculous, so unsophisticated. There was one philosopher by the name of Frederick Nietzsche. Nietzsche was writing and he was writing at a time where he, he just despised Christianity. He said, quote, we hear church bells on Sunday mornings and we ask ourselves, is it really possible this for a Jew crucified 2,000 years ago who said he was God's son 
The proof of such a claim is lacking. Certainly the Christian religion is an antiquity projected into our times from remote prehistory. And the fact that this claim is believed is unthinkable. A God who begets children with a mortal woman? A God that accepts his innocent son's death as a vicarious sacrifice? A God who orders his disciples to drink his blood? Prayers for miraculous interventions? Sins perpetuated against a God, atoned for by a God? Fear of eternity to which death is the portal? The form of the cross as a symbol? How ghoulishly all this touches us, as if from the tomb of a primeval past. Can one believe that such things are still believed today? Later on, Frederick Nietzsche would go on and write in his most famous work, this was Thus Spoke the Zarathustra. He said, we can no longer believe these things, quote, God is dead. Can you really believe that stuff? A virgin giving birth, God's son crucified, supernatural power that intervenes in our worth, heaven and hell. How can anyone believe that where we live in the 20th century? We live in the 21st century now, so how much more unbelievable is it? Another critic of Jesus' teaching was named Rudolf Bultmann. Rudolf Bultmann once wrote, We cannot use electric lights and radios and avail ourselves of modern medical science and at the same time believe in the spirit and wonder world of Jesus in the Bible. How utterly silly for us people living in the modern world to believe in something so insignificant and outdated. Maybe you have experiences of this too, of people thinking just how pitiful and insignificant Christianity looks and the kingdom of God looks. I remember one time when I lived in Nashville, I was sitting at Starbucks and uh, got into a conversation with a, a person who went to the same school that I went to, went to Vanderbilt uh, Divinity School. And he was asking me all these questions about the Bible, and he had walked away from the faith some time before. And he asked me, well, what do you think of Moses? And I think, well, Moses spoke directly with God face-to-face, -face, it says, in the Old Testament. And he delivered God's law. He was the deliverer of God's people, and God did miraculous signs and wonders through Moses. And he looked at me and said, you don't really believe that stuff, do you? And I looked back to him, and I responded, you don't? See, the world will always see the kingdom of God in that way. The world will always see it as nothing more than obscure, unremarkable, undesirable, unsophisticated, unimpressive, good enough to be believed by uneducated, the poor, the gullible, and the irrelevant, sure. But at the end of the day, it is utterly insignificant. Look at Jesus himself, after all. His kingdom begins in Capernaum, a fishing town in the outskirts of Galilee. He's accompanied by fishermen and sinners and tax collectors, women, children. He has no crown. He's born in a feeding trough. He has no military might. He has no earthly power. His own people reject him. His closest friend betrayed him. He was abandoned by all of his followers at his arrest. He was crucified as a common cr criminal under Pontius Pilate in dusty old Jerusalem. The guy is insignificant. And Jesus says, when it comes to his kingdom, exactly. That is my kingdom. It is a kingdom composed of nobody, a kingdom filled with the poor and the weak, a kingdom with no earthly power, a kingdom whose king is crucified. It is a kingdom that is like a mustard seed. Jesus in his first coming was marked by nothing other than insignificance. He was born in insignificance. He lived in insignificance. He died in insignificance. But Jesus says, what happens once a mustard seed is sown? Verse 32. 
He said, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade. What starts out as a tiny mustard seed grows larger than all the other plants of the field. The kingdom of God inaugurated by Jesus in weakness and insignificant insignificance grows and expands to every corner of creation and Jesus reigns over every square inch of the universe. It's interesting. How many people here have ever read anything by Rudolf Bultmann? None, right? Do you know why nobody has ever read anything by Rudolf Bultmann? It's because Rudolf Bultmann, for all of his modern sophistication and intellectual prowess and impressive academic pedigree, is currently six feet under the ground. And Jesus Christ, though insignificant in his first coming, though obscure and trapped in the wonder world of the Bible, he currently is king of the universe and known throughout creation by every tongue, every tribe, every nation, and every people. And at his name, every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is Lord. What about Emperor Tiberius or Emperor Augustus? Both emperors during the life of Jesus who possessed all worldly power, presided over the world's most dominant empire, declared themselves gods, whose kingdom was more expansive than any other. Do you know where they're at? Where's their kingdom? It's with Boltman. And Jesus Christ, though arrested by his own people, delivered over to execution and unjustly crucified under Pontius Pilate as an insignificant criminal. Currently, he is risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and will come again to judge in glory. The living and the dead in his kingdom will have no end. What about Frederick Nietzsche, the man who said God is dead? Well, at the age of 44, he was admitted into two mental asylums because he claimed that he was the creator of the world and commanded the king of Germany to be executed. He signed his his letters as the Greek god Dionysius. That's how crazy he had become. And Jesus Christ, though he was mocked and derided as irrelevant and insignificant, currently he is resurrected and lives as the creator and savior of the world. He is the eternal son of God alive eternally. Nietzsche said God is dead. In fact, in a uh, uh, subway station in England, there's this mural that's kind of been preserved. And written on it is the quote from Frederick Nietzsche from Thus Spoke Zarathustra. It says, God is dead, dash Nietzsche. And then after Nietzsche's death, somebody went into that subway station and wrote, Nietzsche is dead, dash God. See, what the world scoffs at as weak and irrelevant and insignificant nonsense, it now, God's kingdom reigns and remains while they all lie six feet under dirt. Jesus, the king of the kingdom, born and died and insignificant, now reigns and remains in eternal glory. Remember verse 32, how Jesus talks about this tree that'll put out its shade and You know, the birds of the air will come and find its nest and shade in it. Again, this is another reference to the book of Daniel. This is Daniel chapter 4, where there, the king of the Babylonian empire, Nebuchadnezzar, has this dream of a tree that extends into heaven, and it can be seen from all of the earth. And its leaves were beautiful, we're told, and its fruit abundant, 
and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. Then an angel comes down and explains what's going to happen to this tree. It says that this angel comes and he proclaimed aloud and said this, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Nebuchadnezzar was told by Daniel, this is your kingdom, Nebuchadnezzar. It extends up to the heavens. All people can see it. It looks like the most mighty thing on earth, but this is its fate. This kingdom that started as mighty and powerful will be chopped down and destroyed and brought to irrelevance. But Jesus says his kingdom, which starts out in insignificance, comes as a mustard seed. It will become eternally great. It will never be destroyed. It'll continue on into eternity. It begins insignificant, attracting nobodies, is mocked, derided, and shamed, but it alone will remain with Jesus, who rose in power and glory and reigns eternally. Friends, if you do not know the king of the kingdom of God, then your life, which starts out in your eyes, is so significant, so powerful, so meaningful, will ultimately end six feet under. But if you trust in the king, and if you enter the kingdom of God by faith in Jesus Christ, your crucified savior, then you have this promise, even though your life might be insignificant, unimpressive, undesirable now, like Jesus, you will rise again and reign in glory with him. The kingdom will be given to the saints of the most high. Daniel chapter seven, verse 18. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your kingdom, your power, and your glory are beyond all measure. We do not deserve to stand before your presence, Heavenly Father. Yet you have sent your Son, Jesus Christ, as an insignificant, humble, weak, and sorrowful Savior who laid down his life, the great King of the universe, the Son of God, clothed in irrelevance and crucified by sinful humans like us. And God, we need that king. We need your son, Jesus Christ, to save us from our sins and also to bring us into his eternal kingdom. I pray for all of us now that as we consider these things and Lord, as we reflect on your kingdom, your glory, that you would give us hearts that sing the eternal song of heaven and that you would give us the faith to enter into your kingdom. We pray this all in the name of Jesus, your son.